0: You are now listening to the Fat Fix Podcast with David Flowers, a show talking about all things fat loss and health for the general population, helping people understand why they are in the position they're in right now, rather than just focusing on what they need to do. Your no-nonsense personal trainer friend that you can have access to in your pocket whenever you need some help, guidance, or just to kick up the arse. Hello and welcome to the Fat Fix podcast for episode number 26. This week I was joined by Eric Helms who is a coach, author and educator. Eric is someone who is very well respected in the industry and it was a pleasure to get him on my show. In this episode we discussed his concept of the default diet which is something Eric uses with himself and his bodybuilders to help combat post-show drastic weight regain, binge eating tendencies poor relationships with food, and in some cases, eating disorders. We spoke about quantitative and qualitative variables, internal and external hunger cues, and delve deep into more understanding about the volumetrics of food. So if you are someone who feels like they don't have control with the diet, they want to relearn how to eat again and get a better understanding of how to transition in and out of different phases from fat loss to weight maintenance, this one was a cracker. So without further ado, this is episode number 26 of the Fat Fix podcast, The Default Diet, featuring Eric Helms. Hi, Eric. How's it going, David? Welcome to the Fat Fix podcast.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me be here.
0: It's an honor. My pleasure, Eric. Just before we get started, could you just give the listeners a
1: little bit of a rundown on who you are and what you actually do? I am basically just a... Due to likes lifting weights, and it became my uh, intellectual, physical career. Even uh, you, could, you could argue my spiritual pursuit in life. Sometime around 2004 or five, um, started competing as an athlete in drug-free bodybuilding and strength sport. Um, so to date, I've done, God, I think 17 powerlifting meets, three weightlifting meets, a couple strongman shows, and 13 natural bodybuilding competitions. Um, made it into my vocation Uh, in 2005. I became a personal trainer and eventually realized that what I really wanted to do would be to work with other uh, iron game addicts, if you will. Uh, So started 3D muscle journey with my colleagues, Alberto Nunez, Brad Loomis, Jeff Alberts, and then eventually Andrea Valdez in 09. We just had our 10 year anniversary. And what we do is we provide uh, evidence-based information and community support to lifters. Um, My kind of role there is to be the uh, the chief science officer. So intellectually, I've been studying uh, exercise science and nutrition for uh better part of a decade. I uh, got my bachelor's in fitness and wellness, first master's in exercise science, uh, second master's here out in New Zealand when I moved here in 2012, uh, looking at macronutrient manipulation while dieting in uh, strength athletes and bodybuilders, and then just finished my PhD a couple years ago in 2017 uh, in strength conditioning, looking specifically at autoregulation and powerlifters. Um, so kind of what I do is I am a science communicator and, uh, and I guess I try to stimulate thought in our community and provide some support. So I do that number through a number of different ways. I get my books. I do coach a few athletes through 3DMJ. I make sure that 3DMJ is up to date with the best information. And then I've got a monthly research review with uh, some other brainiacs like, uh, Greg Knuckles, Eric Trexler, Dr. Mike Zerdos, and, uh, yeah, also do some podcasting as well on iron, cult, iron Culture with, uh, my co-host Omar Youssef.
0: You've got a lot going on a lot more than me I can guarantee I've only I feel busy just working with a handful of clients and just doing the podcast so it's mad that you can juggle all those things but um, I suppose that's why you're at the top of the game I believe in in what you do and someone that I've kind of looked up to and learned a lot from I must say in in my time and I do apply a lot of your principles especially from your books to what I do with my clients and I've got some great use out of that so it is a pleasure to have you on here.
1: That's an honor to hear that thank you very much.
0: Just before we um, get into the topic today Eric and I know that um, and one thing that I do like about your work is that you you look into a lot more um, a lot deeper psychology when it comes down to eating disorders, poor relationships with food and things like that for bodybuilders. And I think that resonates quite well with a lot of the general population when it comes to attempting dieting. Could you just give a bit of a rundown into what you've been looking into recently with kind of post-show eating disorders, poor relationships with food with some of the competitors and how that links to most people and what they do?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think, um, one of the the most important things that I've uh, done in this stage of my career is to try to give voice to the uh, potential pitfalls of what happens in, in physique sport um, There's a bit of a chicken or the egg here you know I it that people with uh, who struggle with a relationship with their body and food are drawn to the sport or does the sport exacerbate some of those those symptoms and risks uh, and it's probably a bit of both uh, and it depends on, on the person, the specific, Uh, relationship we're talking about and how it plays out and how the sport participation is done. Um, So there's no doubt that there are, you know, biological demands of getting to extreme levels of body fat Uh, that no matter how well you do it, no matter how evidence-based your approach is, uh, no matter how good your relationship with food is, um, if you put yourself into the position where you do what's necessary to get down to essential levels of body fat, essentially having almost no subcutaneous fat, um, it's going to take a long time. It's going to take a, either a long or a difficult diet and typically both. Um, and you're going to run into issues with low energy availability. Um, and your body's going to essentially <clears throat> shut down as many departments as it can while still running, running the corporation, if you will. So quote unquote, unnecessary functions like your menstrual cycle, if you're a female, uh, or having a, a testosterone level that supports libido and, uh, and the ability to, to, to give life as a male, you know, uh, all those things start to go away. Um, and you see psychological effects, uh, sleep disturbances, uh, and it definitely can exacerbate or re-trigger an eating disorder in someone who used to have it. Um, and, uh, typically prompts binge eating because, uh, your, your body's natural response to extreme semi-starvation is to, Hey, you need to eat a lot. You know, we're going to die if a famine occurs or this next ice age pops up. Um, so you're very much fighting your body. And those physiological effects have knock-on effects on your psychology. Um, a lot of the hormonal and regulatory responses to an extreme deficit is to make you really, really hungry and not very satiated when, once you finish a meal. Um, changes your palate so things taste better. Um, you know, when, when you're dieting, that's when food tastes the best, but you're not allowed to have very much, you know. Um, and then, so that that's one component that's not modifiable, you know, for, for the bodybuilder experience or the physique athlete experience. The fact is that if you want to compete in the sport, that's kind of a a requirement. And so what I try to do is I try to give athletes informed consent. You know, some people don't even know, they hear bodybuilding, they think they're going to gain weight into a show. You know, if they're they're that kind of unexposed to the sport, they think it's a sport all about getting bigger. And that's absolutely what you do in the off season. um, But that's not how you get on stage looking like a bodybuilder. So that informed consent aspect is really important. It's something that we understand in other sports, you know. Um, there is, if you're playing a contact sport, now there's a much more greater awareness of traumatic brain injury and how many concussions you can have, there's screening, et cetera. So I'm just trying to create the same thing in bodybuilding. If you love the sport, if you want to do it, you want to participate. Awesome. There's a lot of positive things to be gained from it, but there's also some, some sports related injuries and stresses and risks that one should be aware of. And the same could be said for team sport participation. You might, you know, blow out your ACL, but you're probably going to learn a lot about teamwork, accepting others, tolerance. Um, learning your strengths and weaknesses and and when to stand tall and when to be supportive. All those great things can come out of team sports, despite the fact that they have risks and uh, the same is true of any sport. So that's all I'm trying to do with bodybuilding. Um, The negotiable parts though, although you can't change the physiology for bodybuilding, uh, is that the way you get into great condition uh, and the approach you use, the training you do, the cardio you do, the the way you structure your diet uh, can, be be set up to mitigate as much of that as possible. So you can take a more quote unquote flexible approach to nutrition. Uh, If the only non-negotiables are you have to create a calorie deficit and we want to do things to maintain as much muscle as possible, then we have a lot of play and wiggle room for maybe extending the length of the diet to allow a higher calorie intake and a lower deficit per unit of time. We can come in and out of a deficit. So we have quote unquote diet breaks and refeeds. Uh, So while we can't change the fact that we have to get shredded, we can at least make there be more exogenous energy available in that process intermittently uh, which seems to have <clears throat> positive effects for you know uh, minimizing the amount of metabolic adaptation hormonal shutdown uh, and giving you a, a better spread of food choices so you can minimize micronutrient deficiencies and improve your relationship with food uh, allows you to have more social interaction all that good stuff um, and then like you said your, your leading question was what about the period after the diet and i think this is where the connection to the uh, general population comes in um bodybuilders strength athletes athletes in general and you know really ripped and shredded movie stars are often put up as kind of the uh the leaders or the people the go to people to copy for what you do if you're someone who generally just wants to look better um uh, and and that's a problem because a movie star who gets ripped for a movie uh, or a bodybuilder who gets shredded for the stage or even say an athlete who's in a weight class restricted sport like powerlifting or weightlifting, uh, they go through an unsustainable period of fat loss and weight loss, uh, and then gain that weight back on purpose. That's part of their goal. So the methods that they use are inherently non-sustainable, and that's something that if you're copying that and your goal in the general population is almost always to lose weight and then have that be your your walk-around body weight and maintain. Uh, that, that weight loss, that means you actually need to think totally differently and you need to think about what behaviors can I sustain and what things can I create uh, the, the environment for me to have a better uh, body composition, better quote unquote, one that I'm happier with, that's healthier, et cetera. So I think that's where there's probably more lessons to be taken from what does a bodybuilder do to return to a normal relationship with food uh, after the show is over. And this is where something I call the default diet comes into play. And the default diet is not necessarily the quantitative aspects of how a physique athlete might eat or a strength athlete or anyone who's recreationally very serious about their training, uh, but more the qualitative aspects. So if you were to qualitatively assess my diet in the off season versus the in season, it would look very similar because the habits were the same, but the portions and the components of foods that contain fats and carbohydrates changes a lot. So essentially my quote unquote default diet is that I have, you know, three set meals, a post-workout shake, uh, and, and a, and a snack every day. And on top of that, um, you know, I, I go on walks a certain number of times per day. I train a certain number of t- times per week. Um, and it looks the same, but when I'm dieting for a show, it just means that the protein sources become leaner. Uh, the, the portion of, of carbohydrate and fat containing foods goes down to facilitate weight loss. Uh, and the walks might get longer or more or more frequent. And then when I'm in the off-season, I eat more carbs, I eat more fat, I allow more meals out that are a little less tractor-controlled because um, I'm much more fine with the kind of the auto-regulation and rate of weight gain or maintenance being a little more varied because I don't have an immediate fat loss goal. Uh, and then during prep, it just becomes a little tighter. So it's essentially just this plug-and-play add-on to this default diet that changes when I go from prep to deeper into prep to the transition to the off season to full blown off season, depending on my goals. Uh, And that's something that can be tracked on my fitness pal. And, and, you know, through like kind of the if it fit your macros approach, but ideally you get to a point where you're just auto regulating uh, those, those portion sizes, especially the carbon fat containing foods based on your hunger, which is a really important thing for mental health as well, to not be relying on the crutch of tracking and weighing, but to actually, gain that body awareness and be able to listen to your satiety and hunger signals and make good food choices that are that are satiating and will sustain your energy so that you have an auto-regulation of a healthy body weight in the long run. So that was my extremely long answer to your question.
0: <laughs> no, it's totally fine. Um, so we basically what you're saying, and how I can kind of relate it to the listeners now, when you spoke about off-season and prep, <coughs> you basically want them to closely correlate with one another don't you you don't want too much of a variance between the two and I think that's what a lot of people do when they set up their diet compared to their own original diet because we've all got a diet right and it's just a case of what approach people take usually creates too much friction and there's too much difference between the two so much so that they cannot be adherent to the diet so in hindsight what you what you're saying there um, is that your off-season diet when you're kind of trying to probably build some lean muscle tissue compared to your prep where you're trying to get to ridiculously lean levels of body fat on paper they look pretty much the same to somebody who doesn't know much about nutrition and you've made a variance in terms of portion sizes foods containing more calories etc is that is that kind of where you've got down to with creating the concept of a default diet
1: exactly and that's that's exactly it and it came out of a uh the same problems that you discussed that we see in the general population. You know, if you're a general population trainer, how often does your client say, I'm ready to go all in, I'm really motivated. I'll change everything. Um, and they, no pun intended, bite off more than they can chew, you know, and they tend to have this relationship with fitness and health where they do everything they're motivated and they create the Rocky montage that they can keep up for about two months. And then they unfortunately realize that it's not sustainable. Uh, It doesn't allow them to live the life they actually want. They're uber focused during this one period. And then a friend comes in from out of town and says, Hey, let's go get, you know, a a drink after, after we grab dinner and it's on a workout day and they skip one workout, change their meal plan, have a meal off. They think it's fine. And the next thing you know, they wake up two months later and they're back in your office hiring you to lose the same 30 pounds again. And those people, they, 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 they don't realize that what they need to do is look at how can they take the structure that already exists? Like you said, everyone has a diet. And it may be that something's a little too unstructured and just create structure and then make small changes that are very resistant to any of these outside pressures that might uh, change that, that course. So that friend comes come in, comes from in from out of town, they have tools. Um, they have options and they have a way to work that in. Uh, and, and And likewise in the, the, the bodybuilding world, uh, the influence of if it fits your macros, created this interesting state where the only structure that a lot of bodybuilders had in kind of this newer age was hitting these three target numbers. Uh, and this occurs in competitive and non-competitive, more often than the non-competitive, but serious strength and physique athletes, um, because they have less kind of this background experience. They get into it, they see their favorite Instagram person, they go, oh, if it fits your macros is amazing, great, I'm just going to hit these numbers and eat whatever I want and take pictures of the foods that are typically not bodybuilding approved and feel like I'm gaming the system. But the reality is they don't have consistent meal times. They spend a lot of time cooking, being food focused. The foods they eat are often not that satiating. Uh, and then they may get to the point where they get very, very lean, but now they're very, very food focused. Uh, now they have a lot of interest in eating and not a strong goal to hold them accountable. And that but they don't have any kind of qualitative structure. It's just this quantitative structure. And more often than not, you'll find that those individuals—and this is what I experienced—once um, the prep goes away, they have a really big rebound in body weight and depression and unhealthy relationship with food, binge eating, et cetera. However, when you have these qualitative elements that, like you said, look the same externally, and you've been doing them for years, both in the off season and during prep, if you have the same structure, it basically put, puts guardrails on how badly that post-contest prep period can go. Like if you're only going to have breakfast lunch dinner and a post workout meal and a snack before bed and that's it how big can those things be you know um, and if you simply don't purchase like candy or cookies or all that stuff and your 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 pantry is full of the st- same kind of food you've always had you know a blowout can only do so much damage um, so you might have bigger meals and you might eat until you clean your plate and you might you know occasionally order takeaway instead of having that last meal at home but there's still these constraints, if these are meals, uh, when you see bodybuilders with, with no constraints post-show, they might have like three dinners, you know, they, they go to Taco Bell, Chipotle, and then, then go to Ben and Jerry's afterwards. And they're, they're, they are they they can not even sleep on their back because they're so stuffed. They're sleeping in a freaking chair, you know, and, and, and near vomiting they're eating so much. And that, that's a really common experience. So some of the most important tools someone has post-show is to rely on their habits in that structure and it feels so foreign and so strange when you're doing this a long time to go out outside of your normal scheduled meals and to just grab something weird you know or like just go get donuts in the middle of the day that's not something most bodybuilders will do once they've kind of established these habits Uh, and if those habits also include hey at each meal i'm going to get a lean protein source and a a fruit or vegetable uh, then there's just so much structure that's there that it only gets so far out of control. And and typically it's pretty appropriate. And the rate of weight gain kind of matches to recovery. And by the time you get up to a reasonable off-season body fat, you're starting to feel normal again, your satiety levels return, uh, and and you can be kind of a little more free living. And it provides a natural transition. Uh, Where on the other hand, sometimes you'll see people, I'll give my own example, you know, I started prep back in my very first season, kind of coming from the if, if it fits your macros background. And I was, uh, I think I started prep around 215. uh, And then I was 226 when it was all said and done two months after my show. So I actually had rebounded 11 pounds heavier than where I started and got there within two months uh, after being on stage at, you know, 178. So that was just a massive blowout. And it came from that lack of structure. Uh, Contrast to this season. Now I'm in the, like the mid nineties and I competed on stage carved up in the low eighties. And now I'm Uh, let's see, my last show was first weekend of August and now it's the end of November. So it's a much more gradual and and kind of normal return. I'm a little bit higher than where I started, but I'm by no means am I at an inappropriate off season body fat. I'm not uh, bursting through the seams of my pants and I don't have, you know, a double chin right now. So, (laughs) so mission accomplished, right?
0: Definitely. There's no um, contrast between your habits from when you competed till this day. And I think that's a really good point that you made there about the quantitative and qualitative variables that people have. Quantitative is doing things like, you know, meticulously counting calories on MyFitnessPal, weighing in, doing certain amount of cardio, certain amount of steps per day, certain amount of training protocols. But it's the qualitative variables that really make the difference and the habits that you ingrain over the time doing it. And it's something that I do stress to a lot of clients, especially this time of year, I say to them, you know, don't have the focus necessarily on a body composition, fat loss goal during this time, because, you know, we are going to be surrounded by palatable foods, lots of social Mm. events. Instead, just focus on keeping up your habits. And like you mentioned before, this default diet, keep to the same structure and the same habits that got you into this position that you're in right now. And anything on top of that, doesn't really make that big of a deal like you like you mentioned
1: yeah and and you'll find from the outside people will ascribe discipline to what you're doing because they're looking at it from that same perspective oh i could only maintain these these behaviors for eight weeks and that's because they haven't become habits you know anything that requires restraint you automatically know has a time clock on it it's going to run out you know that's uh for for if if someone is trying to who's listening wants to to lose body fat, get in better shape or get healthier, and the approaches they've currently taken have required a lot of willpower um, and keep requiring a lot of willpower, not just that kind of initial push where you're establishing a new habit, um, like the whole structure is based on, okay, I can do this for twelve weeks it's just a te- It's not even a fix, it's just temporary. you know you you will lose body fat for a period of time, and you'll be right back to where you were slightly higher unfortunately. So whatever intervention that someone puts into play to to make a lifestyle change, they always need to have that in the back of their mind and better in the forefront of their mind. What, what of these habits can I sustain for the long run? And maybe some of them are not sustainable, but they're what I'm doing now to get a good kickstart. But how do I transition to more sustainable habits? What is my exit strategy and that exit being to maintain this fat loss for life? Um, You know, and, and, depending on where you are in the spectrum, there's different issues that pop up there. I run into a lot of people because they're following bodybuilders who are trying to maintain too lean, too lean of a physique than is re- reasonable. But in the general population, it's a lot of people who are um, quite high in body fat and they're with obesity or they're overweight and they, they really just need to take a more moderate approach. Like you said, create some structure and then, then, then let that do its work. Um, And, uh, depending on where you are, that, that might look a little different, but like you said, regardless, no matter what your goal is or whether you're a professional competitive bodybuilder or whether you're someone trying to get in shape for the first time, it comes down to establishing a set of habits. And like I was saying, to kick this off from the outside, it looks like a lot of discipline, but from the inside, it's just sticking with what I've always been doing. So for example, if Christmas day or a holiday falls upon a day that I normally train, I feels so strange to not be able to go to the gym because it's not open. And typically what I'll do, and hopefully no one's listening from where I work is because I have access card. I'll, I'll go into the, the lab or, or the gym where, where the Olympic weightlifting gym is. And I'll train on Christmas day if it's closed normally, just because it, it's Tuesday. I train it's Thursday. I train it's Friday. I train like whatever day of the week it is. This is what I normally do. Um, and it feels weird to not do it. Uh, so that that's the kind of thing to where, if you have that structure, it is, it's harder to step away from it. Almost it feels it's a distraction. It it sets you off your game. You're, um, it it would be like going to bed, going to the bathroom and then reaching for your toothbrush and having it not be there. You'd be like, what the hell's going on? You know, I think that's, that's the way to conceptualize it is that these ingrained habits that you no longer think about, that's what you want your fitness to become. But of course you still want to enjoy it. Like I don't enjoy brushing my teeth, but many of the habits we have, Uh, are things that we don't have to put forth effort to do. Uh, And if you look at the research on people who are appear disciplined, they are not necessarily more disciplined in terms of any objective measurement of of quote unquote discipline or willpower. Rather, they're much better at controlling their environment to set themselves up so they don't have to have challenges to their discipline. So for example, um, I know a lot of bodybuilders who their exit strategy after their show is a list of foods and they'll like stock up in the months coming out of the candy bars and the ice cream they want to go to. And they'll make a list of the restaurants they want to go to. Um, for me, I was making lists of what, what, are the, what are the different energy densities of food? Like I'm going to want to eat a lot and be very snacky. What are some low risk snacks? Like, all right, I'm going to get a shit ton of blueberries and, and carrots and, and watermelon and things like that. And, you know, I'll just have, you know, one, one meal out per day max, you know, and I'll choose the tastiest thing that's still high in protein. You know, that, that, that's kind of like where my brain was at. Um, and uh, I'm not saying that you can't go out and really enjoy food after being restrained for so long. Uh, and you probably should actually rapidly gain weight to some degree, rapid relative to what you would do in the off season as a natural bodybuilder. But I think once you kind of recover, and for what I normally recommend is getting, you know, five to 10% over stage weight within a couple months then it should be the kind of that, that that's, that's slow down and, and the quantitative elements like the actual calorie intake uh, should, should come down. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that's just an interesting insight in that people will describe discipline to what they see. But in reality, um, I love training. It's not something that is I have to drag myself out of bed to do. And it's just what I do. So it's, it's very difficult to not do it. And that's where you want to get yourself to. And it doesn't have to be lifting weights. It doesn't have to be, a bodybuilding style diet, it just needs to be a structured pattern of eating uh, that results in something sustainable and whatever type of fitness you want. Like, you know, um, activity is, is another really, really important component of maintenance of weight loss. People kind of look at activity in the calories in calories out mindset, like, oh, if I burn more calories, I can eat more. That's great. I can use it as a fat loss tool. Well, yeah, but the probably the more important component of exercise is that the more active you are, there's actually a better regulation of satiety and hunger and sedentary individuals don't have well-regulated satiety. So they tend to overeat and gain weight. Um, and if you look at one of the most consistent factors and people who are able to maintain their weight loss, it's maintaining, you know, a, a low energy density of food. So more fruits and vegetables, a high protein intake and maintaining exercise. So even if you still do all the things you used to do, but you're able to keep those four components in there, you're probably going to see a lot more success. So that's how you create a lifestyle and then set of patterns that facilitates that. And I don't care if it's intramural softball or hiking with the geology club or the, the backstroke and that's the only type of swimming you like to do, or heavy weight training. Just as long as you stay regularly active and you're not sedentary, that counts and it's gonna be a huge boon to your health and body composition.
0: Yeah, they're, they're massive points that you just touched upon. And I think just going off that, Eric, when you spoke about the energy density and um, food volume and thing, I think a lot of people don't understand that too much. And it's something that mm. I think think's getting a little bit better. There's a lot more um, awareness of that in terms of like what food actually brings to the table as opposed to just telling people the obvious advice. Like I like to think that most people that I've ever dealt with know the difference between a mars bar and a broccoli you know so in terms of like for nutrition and healthy nutrition but it's giving the tools to why certain things are leading them to talk about these we'll go into it more about the internal and external hunger cues and people not understanding about satiety and hunger and how these foods can actually play such a part of that and saying to them you do have a very junk food diet it's very calorie dense it's not very satiating. The foods that you are eating, you know, you're having a croissant in the morning, which is probably the most uh, palatable food out there, very calorie dense. However, I'm going to start t- teaching you more about instead of telling you don't eat a croissant, I'm going to tell you what that croissant's going to lead to happen probably later in the day that you're going to want to eat more of them and the calories go through the roof as opposed to kind of just don't eat that. But here's some food that you should maybe swap with, which is going to give you less calories a similar taste, um, and it's going to create more food volume, so it's going to make you feel fuller for longer. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't seem to understand, and I want, I'd love to bring that to the table a little bit more, if you could just go into that, because you mentioned with your default diet, that that's kind of the staples that you have in place, and when you are on a fat loss phase, compared to maintenance phase, or a phase where you're trying to gain lean muscle tissue, you'll have very probably similar foods across the board but you'll have differences between the density of those foods and the volume of those foods that it carries. And did they have different effects on satiety and hunger? If you could just elaborate, if that makes sense.
1: Absolutely. And those are a number of things I want to touch on there. So the um, first, I think when I say energy density, um, people probably, I don't, I don't know what that means, but it, 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 it makes sense when you think about the words, it's the, the amount of energy. So calories uh, that are in a given mass of food so if you were to weigh out 100 grams of broccoli it's 20 calories or something like that it's 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 very little uh, however if you were to weigh out 100 grams of olive oil that would be 900 calories right <laughs> or it's, it's just straight oil it's a straight fat nine calories per gram so with various different food combinations different water content different fiber content uh, which depending on the type of fiber uh, it has anywhere from like zero to three calories per gram, uh, the different carbohydrate content. So that's about four calories per gram. Protein is about also four calories per gram. Uh, you can have different combinations, a meal or a food item can have lower or higher energy density. So the, uh, the foods that have really, really high water content, like fruits and vegetables and water obviously has no calories, uh, tend to be very high, uh, in, and their, their, their energy, sorry, very low in the energy density and therefore very high in their satiety because they actually create a mechanical stretch in your stomach. A big component of that is also fiber because foods that are just really, really watery but don't have a lot of fiber, they very quickly just become water in your stomach and they and they get passed as, as urine. But um, fruits and vegetables, they have fiber bonds that body can't break down, create a stretch in our stomach. They visually take up a lot of space so they give us sensory cues that I'm eating a lot of food uh, they take a while to eat you have to chew through them uh, so they give you that 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 time lapse of am'm actually eating a meal so another sensory component that, that gives you satiety um, and then they also take long enough to eat so that the hunger the, the, the signals of actually achieving satiety uh, occur more quickly you know you can eat a uh, but something like a lot of processed food has a really good mouthfeel. It's easy to eat. Doesn't require much chewing. There's actually data to show that you can eat processed foods faster. Uh, and then there's more calories per gram in them and they're hyperpalatable. So you want to eat more of them. So by the time you've actually consumed a lot of calories, those satiety signals are coming around a little too slow and they're battling against these additional hunger signals that are being triggered by the wiring in our brain that likes uh, the sweet and the salty flavors that it has an abundance. Um, so something like, you know, a, a tin of a of, of fruit, you know, like a, a bunch of strawberries or blueberries, it's still satisfying, it tastes good, um, but it takes a while to eat and it has all those other components and it's low in calories. So you can find yourself auto-regulating your, your energy intake based on satiety and hunger, and it will result in a total lower energy intake and therefore a leaner or heavier body composition based on how much uh, the energy density of your diet is and how hyper palatable it is. And all these other components that go into it. Um, protein is also highly satiating. And even though, you know, beyond say 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram, uh, probably won't benefit you in terms of helping you gain lean mass or support strength. That's kind of like the range that that we see where you get optimal resistance training results higher than that might actually help you uh, be a little more satiated because protein is so satiating. Um, So, you know, if you're on a high protein, high fruit, high vegetable diet, and those are your staples, if those are the components of your default diet, um, you're going to have typically a lower auto-regulated total energy intake. And there's also other components. Um, There is some data to suggest that when you eat, um, that certain nutrients will drive hunger if they're not met. So, for example, if certain minerals are are low in their intake or certain vitamins, there's some data uh, that indicates that you'll continue to eat more food until you reach a certain threshold of those nutrients. You'll you'll have more hunger. Um, This is true of protein to some degree, but at a much lower intake than I was recommending. Uh, But it is true of some vitamins and minerals, like I said. So essentially, if you're eating um, foods that are quote-unquote empty calories, meaning that they're low in nutrients, but very high in calories, uh, you will eat a lot of them if that's all you have access to, uh, but not get a whole lot of nutrients until you've eaten in excess of calories. But if your diet is predominated by uh, single food, food ingredient items like fruits, vegetables, whole foods, et cetera, you're going to be getting a lot of quote-unquote bang for your buck, even though there's a low energy density of something like, say, fruits and vegetables. There's a high micronutrient density even for uh, the, the content of food. So all that plays in together, and it's not all energy density. It's not just simply dividing the weight of the food by the calories. So for example, air pop popcorn that is low in fat, it doesn't weigh much because it's air-popped but it still gives you that, that sense of volume. There's a lot of time spent eating it and the calories are relatively low. And like you can eat a huge bowl of air pop popcorn uh, and it gives you the same calories as a small handful of chips, but it takes much longer and people tend to eat less there. So food volume, uh, energy density, fiber content, water content, protein content and micronutrient content are all things that we will want to have in our diet and we get signals that were related to satiety and tell us when we're full and when we're hungry based on that. That's, that said, we also do get signals from the total energy intake. Like there's, there's no way to gain the system too much. Like if you are really, really lean uh, and you don't have body fat, that's signaling leptin. And if you are really, really, really low in total calories and total carbohydrate, again, you're not getting much as far as a leptin signal and leptin is one of those uh, key hormones that tells us when we're full or when we're satiated or when we need to, uh, when your body wants you to gain body fat or not or lose body fat. So in the end, all of those things come together. So if you can create a default diet that has those key elements, uh, you can kind of look at your carbohydrates and fat, and I'm taking this from Eric Trexler, I like the way he looks at it, it's kind of a bodybuilder perspective and prep, that everything else is like a non-essential nutrient. So once you get your, your, your fruits, vegetables, and protein in, and you're getting like a very low baseline level of calories that has your protein, your fiber, and your essential fats in there, uh, then everything else is supplementary. You know that that's the intake that I describe the default diet for a bodybuilding audience as the lowest numbers you get, the lowest your numbers get during prep, right? And that's obviously not what your diet should be all the time, but that's kind of like the skeleton of your diet. It's the backbone. It's the foundation of it. And then depending on what your goal is, if you're earlier in prep, you don't need to be losing, uh, you know, it's so low of calories that you need when you're, you know, five kilos lighter. You're going to have more fats and carbs in there. You're going to have more non-essential nutrients, if you will, quote unquote, likewise, if you're in the off season you're trying to gain muscle mass and you're trying to put yourself in a calorie surplus and it's harder to do so because you're not metabolically adapted, you weigh more. So moving burns more calories. You're going to have a whole lot more uh, carbs and fats in there on top of that same default diet. So my diet is always rich in fruits and vegetables and lean proteins uh, and essential fatty acids. Um, to to the point that it needs to be to to cover my bases Um, but just the the proportion of quote-unquote extra energy changes depending on how much extra energy I want to carry on my body or lose if you will.
0: There's a really good point um, that you made there with you said Eric Trexler came up with it instead of in terms of saying it's an add-on anything extra is an add-on and a lot of people seem to have it the other way around don't they they seem to be adding on the fruits adding on the vegetables to. highly palatable junk food calorie dense diet and switching it that thought process the way around is quite a good one you have the staple skeleton like you said and then this then allows you to still go and have food and eat out with your friends still go and have a meal out when you want still have some chocolate after your main meal like because the skeleton remains the core of it and basically like you've mentioned you made some really good points eric about all the signals with hunger and talking about leptin the satiety hormone how eating these foods plays such a role in all that to hopefully if people do start having this as the core of their diet these things will start to hopefully diminish a little bit and these hedonic food rewards will hopefully start to come down because they've got the basis and i think you mentioned it in a podcast recently it was with james krieger you you're saying about getting people to actually introduce people to have certain foods rather than take food away, and I yes. thought it was a really good point because you you we we often hear don't eat that, don't eat that, don't eat that mm-hmm. we never really get told to eat that because of this, and I think that's a a good way to look at it
1: yeah let me let me touch on that some more because it, it I think the perspective depends on the audience so. Um, you know, I, I do like framing it to that, that bodybuilding audience and always have that skeleton there, you know, always going to have those foods and everything else you add on is extra. But when I talk to someone who does not yet have these habits developed and they're looking to make lifestyle choices, um, it's much harder to sacrifice things you're already doing and change the things you're already doing. Like you may have many of these, you know, toothbrush habits, those things that you automatically do that are not supporting your goals. Right. They're they're in fact in direct opposition to your goals. Those are difficult to change. Some of the, again, no pun intended, low-hanging fruit might be to actually tell them to add things, you know, to eat more fruits and more vegetables. And in the end, it, it ends up being a zero-sum game because you've got this total milieu of things that are going in that result in an energy intake, right? You're your auto rate. let let's say you're someone who who has established habits, but they're not helpful. They include Um, you know, being relatively sedentary, like spending a large amount of time in front of a screen. Uh, And you're also someone who tends to have a lot of go-to food items that are low in protein uh, and and highly palatable. Uh, So you tend to overeat. And this results in you maintaining a body fat that you're not happy with and having blood work that your doctor says, "Ah, I'd like to see this this improve a little bit. If I tell you all of a sudden, hey, we've, we've got to start doing X amount of exercise and totally retool your diet and don't eat this, don't eat that, don't eat this. And you're not allowed to watch your favorite show. We need to get you out on, 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 the, on the track or something like that. That's going to be really hard to adopt. Um, however, if I come up to you and I say, hey, that's all, all fine and good. I think the first step is I'd like you to see every time you sit down for a meal, I want you to have a lean protein source and fruits and vegetables. And you, know, you don't have to eliminate anything. Something has to give. Because if that person starts increasing their protein intake, increasing their fruits, increasing their vegetables, they might still have their chips. They might still have their pie or their cake or or their their cookies, but they're not gonna eat as much of them um, because it ends up being a zero-sum game to some point that those satiety signals are now gonna change as as well as those hunger signals. The mechanical stretch is gonna happen earlier and we're gonna see their natural hunger intake going down even though what I've told them to do is eat more of something and not restrict anything. And we have data to support that. Um, There was a study that came out where they tried to achieve the same energy density in the diet, so a reduction in energy density, and one group was told, avoid fried foods, avoid the, these, these baked, baked goods, all these things that are really high in calories and rather high, high in energy density, I should say. And the other group was, was told to simply add foods that were low in energy density to their diet. And only the group that was told to add things, they see a successful uh, pattern of weight loss and did they actually achieve the goal. So kind of that, quote unquote, abundance mindset versus that restrictive mindset really makes a big difference. And we have a lot of data. Uh, on the psychology of eating, that supports that that people who tend to have a more flexible approach to dieting versus rigid tend to sustain weight loss, be less stressed in the process of doing it, and in general, just walk around with a lower BMI. So I think while two people can hear the same quantitative scientific data, like oh, a low energy density is good, how you apply that is just as if not more important. Um, so when when I when I meet someone and they kind of give you that that basic question that this sh- shows how low their, their level of knowledge is, like, hey, what should I eat to get, you know, abs? And I'm like, well, like, I can't sit here and explain the entire muscle strength nutrition pyramid and talk to you mm-hmm. for three hours and, and getting, you know, teach you how to use my fitness pal and all that stuff. I normally go, you know, each time you sit down for a meal and do have, you know, two to four set meals per day, I want you to have either a fruit or a vegetable and a source of lean protein. And I'll just fire off the, the, the fruit and vegetables that I, w- I would recommend, which is just a list just so they kind of have some idea of what to get at the store. And I'll give them examples of lean proteins. Cause sometimes they're like, Oh, so like a handful of almonds. I'm like, no, that's, that's a, not even dominant in protein that's dominant in fat and it's definitely not lean. Um, so there needs to be some kind of baseline, practical information given. And that succeeds more often than giving someone like, Hey, here's the links to my six 20 minute videos that I want you to watch and, and buy my books. You know, that, that's more for someone who has a background already and is looking to optimize things. Uh, but for someone who just needs to kind of have that, that initial kickstart and make some changes and modify their auto-regulatory system until they're just a little bit leaner, yeah, establishing habits around those things can be really, really important. And that's when I think giving the message of adding something uh, ends up, ironically, reducing total calories.
0: No, it's a really good way to think about it. I've got a client of mine at the moment who's a taxi driver. He'll probably be listening to this podcast, but literally the worst diet I've ever seen. And recently, you know, he's he's come to me in the past. He's had a trainer in the past. He's been saying, yeah, they, you know, they kept saying to me my diet was horrendous, and he knows that. And I was like, oh yeah, no, no shit, we we know your diet's pretty bad. And He's one of the guys who will have a pizza literally in the morning. The guy doesn't even drink. He's not even hungover. So there's no excuses. And (laughs) I've literally just started to add what you've mentioned, some fruit and some vegetables to that existing diet that he already has. And what started to happen is that he's just had this reduction in the urge to eat these foods now. And it's it's magical, really, and, and he's he's baffled he's baffled by it. But obviously, I'm educating him about what we're speaking about here, and he's starting to see the bigger picture and see the light a little bit more. Rather than me say, "Don't eat pizza," I want you to go and have some steak and nuts and some vegetables. Or so he's just <laughs> it's totally unrealistic for him and his lifestyle. I've literally just said, "Okay, why don't you just have an apple with that?" And he's like, "Okay, okay I, I can do that," and it is <laughs> legit low hanging fruit and. Yeah, he's seen some really, really good changes from that. And as a byproduct, he's kind of habitually just, well, should I say, yeah, just sorted out the diet himself without me pestering it. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a really, really powerful takeaway for the listeners, hopefully, to understand that a little bit more, isn't it?
1: I agree. Yeah. I mean, just like I was saying to when I was speaking directly to anyone in the audience who is trying to modify their own uh, you know, nutrition or lifestyle, that if it has an element of restraint that is permanent, it's just a, a matter of time before you before you step away from those habits, unfortunately. For trainers, if the only thing that is keeping your clients accountable is you, that means you're a crutch for them. You're not actually helping them. You know, initially, you might be a good catalyst to to teach them what habits might be really useful. And you have a lot of practical advice and experience to help them know how they can apply some of the principles we're talking about to sustainable habits for their lifestyle. Um, but if you're pestering them via text and hitting them on, on, in, you know, follow, stalking them on Instagram and make sure they're actually in the gym, or you've got a, you know, a tracker on their arm so that you, you can see that they actually move a lot on, on, a, on a given day or et cetera, you've got reminders set up. That might be good to initially get them to just to kick these habits off. But if you're the only thing preventing them from being sedentary and, and not eating a healthy diet you haven't done your job you know you need to find a way like you said to get them uh, to to make these lifestyle changes that result in things so they have that agency they have that ownership of it so that when they're no longer coming into your office they have an active lifestyle as as much as reasonable for you know a taxi driver in this case and they have those components of their diet that are that are resulting in a better auto regulation for sure
0: We've got to think a lot more as well about just, this is not just fat loss we're talking about necessarily. It's, you know, you've got to think socially, emotionally, mentally, all those things come into play as well as the physical side of things as well. That we've kind of, why you probably created this default diet and this structure, because you don't want people necessarily, you know, it's only so long you can chase this physical change before these other drivers to total health come and bite you on the backside
1: yeah exactly i mean nutrition i think that's something we really need to realize like you don't have to train you know um you you can live your life and be sedentary and there's some negative effects of that and it might not be ideal but you won't die if you don't eat you will die so nutrition is not optional like like is, and that means that it's tied into who we are as humans and every culture on the planet uh includes celebrating with food, connecting with food, quite literally breaking bread. Uh, And you can take any ethnicity and put the word grandmother after it. And you know, it's someone who's gonna feed you, whether that's Irish, Italian, you know, Arab, it doesn't matter, like almost every ethnicity, uh, the way that people connect, uh, express love, celebrate, um, is through food and celebrations. You know, it's a a component because for many, many millennia, the, the barrier to our survival has been a lack of food availability. And now we live in a society where we have abundant food availability, uh, which is, you know, part of, part of the whole problem, right? Um, so we've, we've got this entire society built around celebrating with food, interacting with food, and using food as, as, as a, a corner piece of the family and the social unit at the small and large level. So when you tell someone, hey, you just need to eat like a, like a machine, you know, I eat for performance or or just eat like a robot, or just fuel your body for, for this, or, or you know, like if something tastes good, spit it out, like all the things you might hear um, mm-hmm. in, in kind of our fitness blogosphere, that is not something that pays respect to someone as a human. Um, and it might work even temporarily for years as someone as an athlete and has a driving goal, but that comes at a cost down the line. There's a qualitative study called learning to eat again, that's on a group of uh, female athletes who competed at a high level in university. Uh, And they ate for performance. So they ate to maintain a lower uh, body fat level or lower, lower body weight. And when they no longer had that sporting goal, they quite literally had to learn to eat again. And they went through a period uh, of depression and stress because they didn't have a body they liked because they didn't know how to eat uh, because they were no longer eating for sport. And then once they finally got to, that kind of auto-regulated state, they were happy again. And they found they could just eat freely. Um, but those don't have to be two separate stages of life. Um, they, they can be things that can be integrated. And I think the approach that I try to take with uh, my, my athletes is to look at, okay, how do we create these auto-regulated habits that also have sports supportive behaviors involved in them? And then at what time point do we need to really drill down and be, be restrained and restricted and for how long? And obviously, if I want to get someone to ridiculously lean levels of body fat, restraint is, is, is a non-negotiable. There's no way around it. But how long do we need to have it for? Under what context? What tools can we have so that the life can still occur around you so it doesn't create additional stress, making the diet even harder? Uh, and then how do we make the transition back to normal life? So that, that's, that's the kind of the athlete kind of uh, approach to it. But for the general population, there's a lot of lessons there as well. It needs to be something... That, like i said is not precarious it doesn't require restraint and has options and is resistant to the perturbations of life and society and holidays and grandmothers etc uh, and you just need to find a way to uh, work it all in together and i think people also need to realize that it doesn't mean that you should be avoiding anything that's hyper palatable or not have cookies etc like if you have this default diet and everything's set up well and the holidays come around and someone brings you a tin of, of, of chocolate chip cookies, and you have a few. Yeah, you're probably going to overeat on that day. But if everything is set up well, you're you're active. You're eating all these high micronutrient density, low energy density foods, high protein diet, high fiber diet. Uh, the next day, you're probably just going to eat a little bit less. You know, you become much more resistant to these perturbations. Uh, because it doesn't just happen, you know, your your body's hunger and satiety signals don't clock out at the end of each day until workday is over. It extends across uh, days and weeks. Um, and you see a lot of sometimes uh, a way I can kind of prove that point is if you look at some of the short-term studies on appetite suppressants or things that might modify uh, the intake of food right afterwards, like what we call in nutrition science, a preload might preload someone with fiber or preload someone with, with with fluids or preload someone with protein versus carbs versus fat. It might have an effect on the meal that comes an hour later, which we observe and quantify the calories. But then when you do that same intervention in a longitudinal study, sometimes it doesn't make a difference because those regulatory signals overcome that. That's only a short-term change. So anyway, that, 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 that's, that's just kind of my point being that it is this flux state of... Of regulation of of your uh, hunger and satiety that we 're trying to get to that results in uh, a healthy body composition and uh, you know a sustainable life that also pays respect to your culture your family your society uh, your your habits et etc
0: yeah you you mentioned then about learning how to eat again, and I, I see this quite a lot with with people and clients that i 've worked with they've they 've done pretty much lots of things what to get to a certain level of body fat whether it 's They've meticulously counted calories on my fitness pal, or they've they've even had a food prep service where they've had food delivered to them three times a day foods which we've just been speaking about very high in protein lots of vegetables lots of fruit yet when they come away from that they still mm. don't know how to eat and it's and it's from the outside perspective looking in if you if, if you wasn't aware of this so much you'd be thinking how do you not know just yet and this is why these habits, like you mentioned, it's all well and good someone forcing this upon you and, and you saying, okay, eat this way because I'm your coach and you're only accountable to me. How that's not necessarily a powerful driver. And then, as soon as that food prep stops, or you stop being on my fitness pal and using all these quantitative measures, shouldn't we say, it kind of falls to, falls to shit a little bit, doesn't it? And this is why this default diet, what we're we'll, we'll touch upon it a little bit more. It's
1: so important, isn't it? Yeah. So what, what you're getting at, and which is a really good, uh, segue here is the difference between an internal and external cue for eating. Um, so an external cue is something that is not your satiety or hunger, something that is influencing you to eat or stop eating in that case. Um, so for example, uh, an internal cue that guides you to eat might be you look up at the end of the night, Track your your my Fitness pal. You're in the off season. You're a bodybuilder. You've eaten 2,500 calories, and you have to hit 3,000. So you make a meal that has another 500 calories. You know you would have otherwise not kept eating, but you've decided based on an external cue to eat more. Uh, and it's not always my Fitness pal. It's not always tracking. You might also say, "Oh, I got to go pick up my my laundry from the laundromat. It just came out of the dryer." You know you've eaten your 2,500 calories. You plan to be done, and oh man, that donut shop! Someone opens the door, it whiffs in, and while you're carrying the laundry in one hand, you grab a donut before you go to bed and you eat 300 calories from one donut, something you wouldn't have normally eaten if you hadn't gotten that external cue. So it could be a sensory cue. It could be a quantitative tracking tool. Uh, it could be your body weight. You know, you wake up in the morning, you're a kilo heavier than you expected. So you eat a little less than that day than you normally would. Um, and there's a, a time, a place, a way, a method, and a why behind both that can or can be, can or can't might be, counterproductive or productive, depending on the goal. So you can't simply just eat by hunger and satiety all the time in a modern society period, because we're always assaulted with these external cues. But everything we just talked about, if you establish those habits, and if you have those, that, that kind of default diet, you become very, very resistant to those actually taking you off the rails completely. Uh, and it might be that donut on the way back, but then the next day you eat 300 calories less and it makes no difference. Uh, and it kind of just seems like magic. If you've come in from a tracking background and you look at it as in just calories and calories out. Uh, but if you understand how um, you just eating a little bit less of the portion of fats and carbs at dinner that same night, when you had something in the morning more than you anticipated because something smelled good and that that adds up over time and it results in no weight gain or weight loss when you thought it would, uh, it's not just a, a zero sum gain. And it becomes a zero-sum game only when you track. So one thing I noticed is way back in the day when I had strict macronutrient targets in the off season, is that I would gain body fat unexpectedly sometimes. You know, I'd think, okay, I'm in a 200-calorie surplus, but the reality is, is my energy expenditure does this, right? So that means some days I'd be in a, a massive surplus. You know, I'd be hitting my 3,500 calories, and if I was super sedentary that day, I didn't think about it. I'm just thinking about my numbers man, I might've ate 1200 calories more than intended. And there's only so much glycogen you can store, and only so much muscle mass you can build in a single day. So that day I just stored a bunch of body fat, you know? And without the normal response of my body going, oh wow, we just stored a bunch of body fat, we're in a big surplus, tomorrow you're not gonna be as hungry. I just force feed till I get back to my numbers again the next day. Uh, And so then then some few days later, I'm in a small deficit, but it it ends up being actually a suboptimal gaining approach is what I I found. But anyway, the, the... the utility of internal and external cues are such that you only should be using external cues in my opinion purposefully um, to supplement your internal cues to give you awareness to be support supportive or in times when your ex when your internal cues will not be reliable or they won't be helpful Uh, so for example if you're trying to get into a really 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 shredded condition it may not be useful to be thinking a whole lot about your satiety and hunger because you'll have no satiety and all the hunger and you need still need to eat less. Um, Now that said there are stages in a contest prep or stages in a diet where, you know, like if you were to say, put hunger and satiety on a one to five scale and you knew that if your satiety was around a three on average and your hunger was around a four on average, that's hard, but you can do it. And that results in an appropriate deficit and rate of weight loss. Now you're using a quantification of your internal cue and you're then checking it by the external cue of your body fat in the mirror, how you look, and then your body weight on the scale on average. You could effectively maintain an appropriate rate of weight loss, get leaner, but not track calories. You know, And if you have that kind of default diet setup that you know was gonna result in uh, appropriate intake of micronutrients, essential fats, and protein, that's gonna get the job done. You know, And it doesn't necessarily matter whether you had 175 grams of carbs or 225, and a little bit less or more of fat on in a given day, your net deficit is producing the weight loss and the body fat you desire. But you're doing it with an internal cue guidance. At yes. a certain standpoint, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, no, sorry, sorry, mate, carry
1: on. Yeah, I was going to say at a certain st- in a certain stage, it probably makes more sense just to track because those those signals become so dysregulated, and maybe even trying to think about how hungry or how how, how satiated you are is stressful. You know, uh, I, I can tell you that from experience as a coach or an athlete. Constantly going, yeah, how hungry am I? Five out of five. How satiated am I? Zero out of five. That's not fun. It's kind of quantifying your misery. And it might be better just to accept the fact that uh, you're in that stage of prep. It's hard. You're not going to feel great. And to just have numbers and track it and uh, even have coaches' feedback so you can think less about it. So I do think trying to ignore it at a certain point makes sense, but it comes at a cost. It means, like you said, do you mind from the outside? How can you not know how to eat? But well, I've been trying to purposely ignore my hunger and and satiety signals for a while because I haven't had the, the, the latter, and I've had all of the former, and I've been trying to get shredded, and I'm going to have to relearn that through the recovery diet process. So that that is something that that kind of is a consequence of of competing in a sport uh, that requires an intense focus on nutrition, um, and that but that's true of you know whether you're a dancer, whether you're a weight class athlete, a lightweight rower to some degree, bodybuilding is just kind of the extreme version, but in the general population you can certainly use tracking and external cues to help develop these habits. Like I really like people to track without targets initially, just so they have a a feel for, for what nutrients are in their diet. What habits do they do? They don't even pay attention to, to increase mindfulness. Like, Oh, I forgot about that donut I got after the laundromat. I didn't even think about that. But when you have to write it down and think about it, now it becomes much more mindful and you might make a different decision. Despite that sensory cue, you might be able to tell the difference now that you're more aware between craving and actual hunger. Um, so increasing mindfulness, understanding what nutrients are in your diet. So therefore you, or with collaboration with your trainer can go, Oh, look at that. We're actually quite low in protein, or we really don't have that many fruits and vegetables in your diet and you can make changes and you can establish these new habits that ensure your default diet looks a little closer to what we think might be better for your goals. So, uh, I think what you don't want to do is use external cues as a, as a crutch or as a replacement for an internal cue which is kind of like what I do if, if it fit your macros in those examples I gave. It didn't matter how hungry, how satiated I was, uh, I, or, or, or like what my meal structure was. I The only structure I had was a number for protein, number for fat, and number for carbs. And that created a lot of problems. Um, so I think if you were to know what your, your protein, carbohydrates, and fat intakes are, but you also can auto-regulate their intake based on your hunger and satiety, now they're working in tandem because we don't actually know how many calories we're burning, you know? So we shouldn't have a fixed calorie intake if we're trying to really be quote unquote optimal. Um, So that's kind of what the default diet does. It allows you to flex in and out larger or smaller portion sizes while still having those those key components and then modifying it uh, based on either quantitative values. You can use those external cues in the right appropriate circumstances, like I said, or internal cues uh, whenever you can to keep that body awareness and not have to learn how to eat again like we were talking about in all the other times of your life um and and it gives that those kind of baseline supportive habits of whatever your goal may be you know the baseline diet of an endurance athlete is going to look a lot different than a competitive bodybuilder so you know just kind of take that same principle but apply it in, in your context
0: just before we wrap this one up eric because i know you're busy mate um in terms of how can people set up their default diet, like what is the solution? And maybe you could use an example for yourself. I know we have mentioned about prep, um, off-season and um, recovery. Uh, so whether that's kind of, so in terms of how I could relate it, like when someone's trying to diet to lose body weight and then say maintenance, because they're usually the two things that people have most of a problem with. They try and lose weight and then they struggle to maintain it. So let's compare that off-season to prep as in, cutting calories, fat loss, and maintenance. How could somebody set up their diet? Because like I said before, uh, at the start of this podcast, we all have our own diet. So if someone was Mm -hmm. listening right now, they've got a particular diet, how could they set up this type of default diet in terms of fat loss and what they need to do to go back to a maintenance to keep body weight the same, essentially, and not lose their mind in the process?
1: Sure. So if, if the goal is, uh, is fat loss or, or ma- at least maintaining a leaner physique, um, and I'm assuming if they're listening to us, there's probably some element of uh, you know overall body composition improvement or, or, or muscle mass involved. Um, the best way to ensure that the weight you lose is fat loss is to really support uh, muscle retention or muscle growth. So it's going to sound a little bodybuildery, um, but of course it can be applied to many, many different people. So I would say you want at least three protein-containing meals per day. So if you're just a standard breakfast, lunch, and dinner guy or gal, that's totally fine. Uh, if you're someone who wants to take an fit your macro, sorry, uh, IF approach, a intermittent fasting approach where you skip breakfast, um, that's fine as well. You can just have one other protein snack per day in in your in your feeding window, but just three times per day at least, maybe up to five if you want to eat more frequently, of having protein servings. And then take your your body weight in pounds. Uh, or roughly twice your body weight in kilograms is a is a rough guideline of protein, and divide that roughly evenly between however many meals you decide to eat, and then look at what types of foods you like that are protein containing primarily, and what that would look like at different serving sizes. It doesn't need to be completely even. So you know people typically have some eggs and maybe you know some smoked salmon or or bacon or something at breakfast. Um, so you might not have quite as high of a protein intake there as you would at night when you might have a solid portion of your plate being a protein serving. So you could have a little bit unbalanced here and there. You might get like 30 grams at breakfast, 60 grams at dinner, instead of having just a flat 45 across the whole day, for example. Um, but that, that, that's step one, fixed number of meals per day with one or two snacks, whatever, between three to five servings of protein, roughly spread your body weight in pounds and grams of protein or uh, twice your body weight in kilograms, which is roughly the same value across those meals, and that's kind of where you start. And then at every single meal, you're going to have a fruit or a vegetable serving. Ideally, you have a vegetable serving at each one, um, and and then you know an optional fruit at each place. And that can be something you flex in based on your hunger levels. Uh, and that's that's a really good place to start. Um, and I, I think if you were to also have some essential fats in place there, which isn't hard to do. Like that could be fatty fish, that could be a small handful of nuts or something like that. Um, that could be olive oil on, on, on a salad or on your uh, on your uh, vegetable. Um, those are all really easy things to do. And that's just kind of what you do no matter what. And that can be in a restaurant or outside of it, um, where you can just kind of, the one thing I like to do is just, if you have the dinner that's out, whatever, you just have what you want, and then you just get right back to it the next day. Uh, and if you still have your default diet, you might have slightly lower protein intake that day or uh, slightly higher fat intake or something like that, or total higher calories. But again, the portion sizes and the things you flex in and out of that, on top of that skeleton are probably going to auto-regulate themselves pretty well the next day. Uh, and then, you know, one thing we didn't talk about is fluid intake. I think try to have at least a couple of glasses of calorie free drink at each one of those meals. So that could be, you know, a coffee at breakfast and uh, and a glass of water as well. That could be, you know, a couple of diet sodas throughout the day. And that could be, it, you know, for those of you who are in, in Commonwealth nations, you've got morning tea, you've got afternoon tea, you've got evening tea. There's a lot of opportunities for tea. And tea, unless you're throwing a bunch of stuff in it, is typically calorie free. So um, take advantage of tea time. And that, that's kind of the way I, I would set it up, basically.
0: Yeah, I liked on your article that you did on uh, 3DMJ, where you, you laid out your kind of structure to it. And that, um, it was really cool, because you you had this structure in place, you have a lean protein serving, uh, low calorie fruit and some vegetables, and then basically that's that 's basically your low calorie day for that mm-hmm. breakfast and I like it because you you can kind of people can take this and say they have their own diet and then they can skin that diet as much as possible in terms of a fat loss perspective, so skin it of calories so you had like you could have low um, low fat Greek yogurt that's you 've skinned that protein sauce with no fat content as opposed to if you are on a period where you are trying to maintain body weight or your energy expenditure's gone up, you can now maybe switch that to a, a full-fat Greek yogurt. And I liked how you switched low-calorie fruit to higher-calorie fruit. and But the skeleton still remains the same. And I think when you look at that and you see people's kind of eating patterns, this is usually the case. They'll wake up, maybe have some eggs, and then in the uh, afternoon they'll have a sandwich with a bag of crisps. And then in the evening, they'll have a massive portion of like spaghetti bolognese or something with a few glasses of wine. We can look at that default. That is somebody's essentially default mm-hmm. diet skeleton. And then we, how we manipulate that can really be quite simple, can't it? You can just be looking at that and go, okay, let's look at your sandwich in the day. Instead of having the crisp, we're going to swap it with a popcorn that you mentioned before. It's lower calories. It's not too much of a trade-off for them. So they're not going to lose their mind and say, oh, you swapped a bag of crisps, a piece of salad. It's not really a good trade-off in terms of taste, but we're reducing the calories. So ultimately they can create this own default diet, albeit if it is not as good with food quality as we expect over time, then habits, like we said, can start to develop naturally anyway. But if people look at it this way and think, okay, if I skim my diet, this is what I do with it. This is my fat loss diet. And then in terms of this is now my maintenance diet obviously while still checking body weight and stuff, it can become I believe it is one of the best ways to, for people to really start eating as opposed to hmm. living a life on my fitness Pal. and it does kind of we do want people to not necessarily track because
1: yeah.
0: essentially we want to get people away from that way of living and people that are successful at it like yourself who've done a comp prep not tracking that's where we want people to get to and have this understanding and nutrition and, and really they will be successful, won't they?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was able to get through, you know, I would not the length of the prep. I spent a lot of time tracking, but for the amount of fat loss, you know, I got down to, I lost a total of about 10 kilos in my contest prep and the first six or seven, I did not tracking, you know? So I think that's, that's definitely something you can do and i really like the way you describe that you know like if that is what you do you have you know eggs eggs for breakfast a sandwich for lunch and spaghetti bolognese for for dinner for for a fat loss phase you can just cut up more zucchini you know saute some spinach and take half the weight of the spaghetti and replace it with vegetables and you know make sure you've got a relatively low calorie tomato sauce in there and you know cut up you know chicken breast lean chicken breast into it instead of sausage very very similar thing. But now all of a sudden you have cut the calories in half and uh, potentially increase the protein as well. And for lunch, yeah, you go from having, you know, mayonnaise on it to, 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 fat-free ranch and you take a leaner deli meat and, you know, instead of having crisps, you have a salad with it, or like you said, air pop popcorn. And for breakfast, you go, just go from eggs to egg beaters and boom, you, you've, you've created a thousand calorie deficit with the same outside observer uh, you know, view of the food and, and the actual same weight of the food probably, um, but higher micronutrient density. And you could even throw in, you know, let's say you get hungry on that. You're in a thousand calorie deficit, have two pieces of fruit. It's only 200 calories. Now you're in an 800 calorie deficit. Awesome. You know, have another, yeah, have you before bed have some Greek yogurt, you know, fat free Greek yogurt, a little bit of Splenda in there, throw some fruit in there. Sure. It's another 400 calories. But boom. You're still in a 400 calorie deficit when you've done that. Now you're eating more total food, in terms of weight and and volume, Uh, and you're eating, you know, more micronutrients and higher protein. And that's something that is really sustainable. And that's when people like you'll hear people post on Instagram, like, my trainer has me eating more food and I'm losing weight. And then Mm -hmm. your your annoying PubMed ninja will come in there and be like, you're not eating more food. You're in a calorie deficit now. And it's (laughs) like, well, how do you define that? Like if they were eating one kilogram of food uh and and when they were gaining weight and now they're eating 1.5 kilograms of food and they're actually losing weight they are eating more food in terms of the way humans think about it. You know, not the way my fitness pal thinks about it. They're eating less calories, less energy, but the total space that food takes up, the number of food items, maybe even the number of meals has increased, uh, and the size of the plates and how much of it is covered has increased. So I think that's, that, that's, that's uh, just some different perspectives that we can take that give us more tools as trainers and as individuals trying to pursue our own goals that uh, can be quite useful.
0: Yeah, I must say I've used, I've used this – with quite a lot of my clients I'll be honest and I've had great success with it because not only not only is it kind of really beneficial to for them to understand they found it so easy to do and when I've actually mm-hmm. I've actually wrote it down with some with some of my clients I've sat there with a whiteboard tell me what you eat and I've just gone through this and I've like like I said I've kind of just pulled the calories right down and I said right this is your real low day this is your extra low calorie day, this is what, what we're trying to run, say, if we run a two-week fat loss phase, this is what you're going to eat. But it still looks very similar to what you eat when you're gaining loads of weight. It's just that I've changed up these, well, smart changes, and they can't quite believe it. They kind of, like, mm. ha- like don't understand that until they understand what we spoke about, calorie density, food volume. Then they're like, oh, my God, I'm actually eating the same diet, and I'm losing weight. It's not too restrictive thank you very much. And then they can really start then to understand, okay, so if you are looking now to maintain body weight, we're going to pull you back to estimated maintenance. What I want you to do now, instead of swapping this, instead of having egg whites, now you can have the full egg. And I, I think they see it that way. They think, oh, you're right. I have got a diet. I don't need to go to attempt to do a ketogenic diet or attempt to do another diet that I just know is not sustainable or they watch Game Changers and want to become vegan. (laughs) They just know their own diet and they can just smash it. So, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, thanks for bringing that to my light, Eric, because it's been very beneficial and I'm sure a lot of listeners to this episode today have got a lot from it because it it makes so much sense and I do believe it's definitely a way to go.
1: Yeah, my my pleasure and I appreciate the platform to do so.
0: No, just before I wrap it up, Eric, do you want to just give the listeners they run down where they can find you because like I say, I love your work and I'm sure they will do too after listening to this. So any platforms that you can want to give a shout out to?
1: Absolutely. So the, uh, I think the default diet article that I wrote that spurred this podcast is uh, one of the blogs I write, uh, semi, semi regular blogs along with my fellow coaches at 3d muscle journey. Uh, so if you go to the number three, uh, the letter D muscle you can find our podcast We're in the, in near 150 episodes now. And our blogs that uh, have been roughly about one per month, uh, in aggregate over time. Those are all free to, free to look at. There's a link to the 3DMJ Vault, which is where we have our courses. There's free courses and paid courses. And you can uh, sample like 20 to 30% of the paid courses anyway. So that's the one-stop shop. You can also find links to my books, monthly cap- applications, and strength support. Uh, and you can find uh, the Iron Culture podcast, me and Omar Isif on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel for 3D Muscle Journey that's there through that website. So, probably the best one stop shop would be 3dmusclejourney.com. And then for more daily content, you can definitely check us, uh, check me out at Helms3DMJ. Perfect. Thank
0: you very much, Eric. I really appreciate
1: it. My pleasure. Cheers. Thank you for listening
0: to the Fat Fix podcast. And I hope you all enjoyed today's show. If you have not already, please make sure you subscribe and you don't miss out on any future episodes. I also can't stress enough how much it means to me, to those that have left me a star rating and written review on iTunes. This will ultimately help me reach more people like you and really help them too. So please give me two minutes of your time to do this if you haven't already. Lastly, any shares and mentions on social media is also massively appreciated. I will see you very soon for the next episode. Thank you very much.